0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of Tea for c if you love coffee and you're interested in business, then this is the episode for you because my next guest transformed his small family business in the coffee industry into a global market leader with customers in over 70 countries. But before I introduce you to Josh Dick, I want to make sure you've signed up to get a free copy of the Just Brew It ebook with Career advice from some of the rock star professionals who've been guests on T4C, including NPR journalist and podcaster Guy Ross and Dr. Janet Yellen, the former chairwoman of the Federal Reserve Bank. And it is so easy to do, my friends. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and you'll see the sign up box right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Josh Dick, the former CEO and chairman of the board of Ernex, a small family business established by Josh's great-grandfather in 1936, which Josh took over running in 2003 and transformed into a global market leader in the coffee industry. And it has customers in over 70 countries and distribution facilities on three continents. Over the 15 years that Josh headed up Ernex, sales grew more than 25 times while earnings multiplied, get this, 275 times. But if you knew Josh in college, you probably wouldn't have guessed he'd end up going into the family business. That's because he majored in political science and interned in D.C. three summers. After he graduated from school, he went to work in investment banking for Solomon Brothers on Wall Street as a financial analyst. And after a couple of years doing that, Josh hated it and he decided to go to business school to get his MBA and then went to work for Unilever Home and Personal Care Division in marketing. Today, Josh is a partner. At Wave Investments, which is a private equity firm focused on long-term investments in the global specialty coffee sector, he's also the author of a new book entitled Grow Like a Lobster, an unusual framework for no-nonsense business building. The book shares the tips and guidance that Josh wishes someone had shared with him before he graduated from college. The book's primary metaphor likens the painful and exhausting process that a lobster experiences with each molt of its shell, which happens as the lobster grows out of its existing shell to the ups and downs that businesses encounter as they grow and evolve. Josh, welcome to Time for Coffee. Of course, you're caffeinated and ready to go,
1: right? I am all set, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. I want to let
0: you know that I am so thrilled, Josh, to have you on the show, because the only other time I had the pleasure of interviewing someone who is actually in the coffee industry was when I interviewed Lucy Helm, who is the chief partner officer at Starbucks. And that was way back in episode 68. That was almost 400 episodes ago.
1: Wow. Unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, and I
0: am so excited to get the chance to learn more about the coffee industry, and we will do that. But first, before we get into your time as CEO of Urnex Brands, we should let our listeners know that we are doing this interview at the very end of April 2020, and the coronavirus, which is something, my goodness, four months ago none of us would have been able to tell you what it is, is now ubiquitous. And you and your family are actually living in Florence, Italy. And for a time, Italy seemed to be ground zero next to Wuhan, China, and at one point was overwhelmed by the number of patients who were in need of ventilators. How are things now, Josh?
1: Fortunately, things seem to be really calming down and slowing down. We see the light at the end of the tunnel in the idea that the restrictions are going to slowly start to ease beginning next week.
0: Oh, wonderful news. And You were telling me in the Espresso Shots interview that here in the U.S., Even though we are hunkered down in our homes, we are still allowed to go out and exercise and walk and pretty much do whatever we want. But that's not the case in Italy.
1: No, in fact, I'm looking forward to first thing Monday morning, May 4th, going out for a nice long run and getting my kids out of the house to do the same with me or on their own because we've really been restricted and they're taking it seriously here.
0: Oh my goodness. Well, I hope that the numbers continue to go down in Italy, and I certainly hope the same in every country around the world, including here in the US. So Josh, I thought we could start off our caffeinated chat getting some quick insights into what you are doing now. You are a partner in a private equity firm called Wave Investments, focusing on long-term investments in the global specialty coffee industry. So give us a quick fill on what that means? Yeah. And what that covers.
1: Yeah, so Wave is this group of people who primarily myself and one other former CEO in the coffee industry who have decided that There are a lot of really smart, enthusiastic, energetic young entrepreneurs in the industry who we think maybe we can help both by making financial investments in their business, but more importantly, by giving them some advice and some networking connections and opportunities. And to date, we've made five investments in businesses in the coffee industry, everything from a US-based manufacturer of equipment that prepares cold brew called Beacon in Philadelphia, a very interesting process, a German-based specialty coffee shop chain, small group called Public, that's actually putting coffee shops inside of remote offices or temporary office spaces like WeWork type facility. They're setting up coffee shops in the lobbies there. We also have an investment in a roastery and another one in a very interesting Swiss company that's making a type of brewing equipment. So we're kind of touching a lot of different parts of the industry and trying to help the companies and the CEOs where we can with people we know and experiences we have. Terrific.
0: So, how has the
1: coronavirus affected the coffee industry? It's been bad. (laughs) You know, we're seeing really, in our businesses, fortunately, not as bad as in some others that I'm seeing, but those coffee roasters and suppliers that were bringing coffee to hotels and restaurants are just devastated. There is a very large pickup in consumption of coffee at home. So online sales of coffee, beans, whole bean, ground bean, coffee equipment, and even the cold brew, which is bottled and canned for distribution through grocery, is doing okay. Not what we might have expected had coffee shops and restaurants remained open, but hanging in there. Mm. People love their coffee. (laughs) Oh, yes, we do.
0: Are there any new trends that were on the horizon for the coffee industry pre-coronavirus that may still be relevant
1: now? Well, I think cold brew is really something that's been coming over the last couple of years. And the processes for doing the extraction and making coffee just taste this sweet, beautiful, low acidity through cold brew process is going to continue to come. And I also think there's a lot of delivery of coffee that we're starting to see happen where you can order your cappuccino to be delivered to your office or to your home and moving it around. And during this Corona world, it seems like that's only can continue.
0: If you were a 20-something, Josh, who was interested in exploring opportunities in this industry right now, and you had just graduated from college, where would you look For those opportunities? Because I think for most of us, when we think of someone in their early 20s in the coffee industry, they're a barista or maybe they're a waiter. What are some of the more dynamic companies in this industry right now, which may still be hiring?
1: Yeah, so I think there is a number of different levels of coffee involvement, and there's some real specialty producers that are the brands and the companies like Counter Culture based in North Carolina, Intelligentsia based in Chicago, or Stumptown based in the Pacific Northwest, along with Pete's and Starbucks, big companies that understand the coffee supply chain maybe are going to have different positions and opportunities, everything from sourcing beans to processing logistics packaging, roasting, serving, and being a barista. So I think to get involved and to understand, I think a young person should really start reading the coffee trade press. There's a nice website called sprudge.com that does a good job of sharing what's going on in the industry. And maybe when they start to reopen, attending some of the regional coffee fests or coffee conferences that happen. And they're just one or two day long celebrations of coffee, where people get together and try different coffees and meet each other. And I think that's a really nice way to enter the industry. Nice. And you said that that publication is called Sprudge? Sprudge, yes. S-P-R-U-D-G-E. Sprudge.com. Just Smart rolls guys. off the tongue. Yes. <laughs> Smart guys who write in a really nice way and tell a lot about the coffee industry. Wonderful. So we did touch on this in the Espresso Shots
0: interview. And by the way, if you're interested in learning how to break into the industry, check out show notes to see if Josh's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. But could you just give us a broad brushstroke look at all the different types of companies that touch on the coffee industry. You mentioned some of the big coffee, I don't know if producers is the right word, but the the names like Starbucks and Pete's and whatnot that actually touch the customer and deliver coffee to the customer. But what are all of the other types of companies that are related to this industry.
1: Yeah, there's so many. In fact, if you were to just walk into a specialty coffee shop, like a Starbucks or a Pete's and look around, you'd start to recognize that somebody is supplying everyone these cups and these lids and the java jackets that protect your hand when it gets hot. And someone is also there selling the reusable mugs and the coffee brewers and the espresso machines and the grinders and the filters and each one of those elements. And then there's the business that I was in, the detergents for cleaning the coffee machines. And you start to look around and you see there's a really enormous ecosystem of different businesses that are supplying all the different Elements necessary to brew specialty coffee at a retail environment. Go even further, and you can imagine what's happening behind the scenes in a restaurant in your home. And then you have the online resellers of home equipment, brewers, filters, all of that again. So it's really a pretty extensive industry and how far it reaches and what surrounds the actual bean. I'm going to want us in just a
0: moment to flash back to 2003 when you first took over the helm at your family's then small business in the coffee industry, coffee-related industry. But I can't let you go without asking you what it takes to brew a delicious cup of coffee. I know that you said you had just prepared a pour-over coffee before we started our interview. (laughs) What are the steps you take, Josh, to ensure that you're getting the most
1: flavorful brew? Well, it may sound a bit self-serving, but the number one thing is to make sure you have clean equipment (laughs) because everything else is going to go down, down the drain if you haven't actually prepared your equipment properly. Coffee is this beautiful oil that we are extracting from this natural product. And the biggest thing that I always recommend is start with great beans, Be able to brew it at the right temperature, which means properly heated water. Always, always grind your coffee fresh. Very, very important. If you're going to invest in any piece of coffee equipment for the home, I think it's a grinder before anything else. Anyone else, you can make water hot on your stove. But if you can't grind the coffee fresh, you're sort of starting behind the eight ball. So those are the real elements. And after that, it's just getting used to the flavors of coffee you like and the brewing technique, whether it be a French press or a pour over or automatic brewer or making espresso. But clean equipment, ground fresh with proper temperature water are the keys in my mind. Excellent. Thank you
0: so much. So as I said in the introduction, if someone knew you Back in college, they would not have said you would be doing what you're doing now. They wouldn't have predicted that because you were a poli-sci major. You had spent three summers interning in DC. Was that because you were thinking maybe going into politics or think tank or government or something like that?
1: All of the above. I think I was just fascinated and intrigued by the world of government and Washington DC and think tanks and policy and international relations. And all of those elements got me excited. And I, I think as my career progressed, If you were to look back on it, it's this collection of lots of different experiences that each kind of pointed me in another branch of life. And I think my summers in DC gave me this incredible exposure to Capitol Hill and the State Department, but also a bit of a frustration with bureaucracy and the pace of things and the way things worked in government that sort of said, boy, what can I do in my career to get a little more global exposure without being consumed by the system of government. And I think that's how I pivoted to try finance and investment banking. So it really was this sort of winding road that got me to entrepreneurship.
0: I think just as we taste different types of coffee to figure out what flavors work best for us. It's the same thing with what we study in school and the internships we do and the jobs we have after we graduate. It's hard to know until you try what actually fits with your, maybe your vision of the kind of life you want to have. You
1: don't know until you do it. A hundred percent. I talk a lot about the idea of looking for your dream job in my book. And that was really how I kind of see my life in some way. I tried a lot of different things, maybe tasted a lot of different coffees. And each time I learned a little bit something about myself and what was important to me and my job and my career. And that sort of helped me navigate to my role at Ernex and ultimately my new dream job, which is living here in Italy. So it's been a really positive progression of learning and trial and error and evolution. I
0: think that's such an important point, Josh, because the fact that you mentioned error, some people would say, oh, man, I was in such and such a job. I hated it and would see that as somewhat of a failure. It isn't. Mm. It's the natural Progression. It's no. the it's the way that you brew the right cup of coffee. It's it's trial and error. Flashing back to when you were at Yale, you were studying political science. Did you know what you were gonna do with that poli sci degree when you graduated?
1: I had no idea. I really looked at it, it was something that I was had the luxury of pursuing. I was really a straight liberal arts major, trying things, tasting things, everything from my political science classes that fulfilled my major, but also taking courses in art history and literature and geology, you know, trying to get a little bit of taste of everything where it fit within the academic curriculum. And I really didn't know what that was going to do, but I thought it was just shaping me. And most importantly, out of college, I think I gained Two things that helped me in business. One was my writing skills, the way I can communicate as a writer. And I think second, college taught me an ability to read for the bias of the author, which I think serves you very well in any profession you might pursue. Oh,
0: my goodness. Absolutely. And tell me if this resonates with you, Josh, because one of the things that I've landed on as a result of interviewing hundreds of professionals like you is that rather than thinking of our major as being the tiny house that we're forced to live in for the rest of our lives, because I think so often that's the way it's portrayed. We should view it as the foundation of a professional skyscraper that we're building over the course of our lives with each new job and each new career, adding a new floor in that
1: skyscraper. 100% agree. And as you noted earlier, I was an investment banker for a few years. I hated it, but I would do it over because I learned so much and it taught me so much about myself and also about other things that are very important to my future career. So I went through that experience and I might not have been happy the whole time, but I stuck it out. I fulfilled my commitments and obligations and I took something of value that helped me know that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life, but gave me some skills that I used everywhere else.
0: All right. So let's talk about just briefly your time in investment banking as a financial analyst at Solomon Brothers.
1: What skills did you
0: learn there that you took with you after you left?
1: So there were a few there were you know the obvious skills of financial analysis I had never owned a calculator in college I'd never taken a math class and here I was working with I'd never seen Excel before and here I was working in investment banking building financial models so I learned that learned that very quickly but more importantly I think I learned there about attention to detail the importance of attention to detail because the expectations were so high and the culture was extremely demanding and I think also managing expectations. I think that attention to detail and your financial analytical skills are only as good as the expectations of those above you that are evaluating you. So it was really important to get the numbers right or get the things you were presenting right and clear where people lost faith and confidence in who you were and it made your life pretty miserable. So it was really getting it right and you know th- those three skills were pretty valuable. I should also ask you, what was it that gave you
0: I don't know, the confidence to think you could make it as an entry level in the investment banking industry, not having taken any math.
1: You know, it was, I I really don't know. It sort of seemed like this opportunity was available. There were interviews for it coming to campus and I decided to pursue one. I asked a lot of questions of people that were in the industry about what was there and what I might learn from it. So I kind of looked at investment banking as a couple more years of school. And if I loved it, I was gonna stay. But it was like at least two or three more years of an opportunity to try stuff and be taught and to be educated while getting paid for it. So I said, eh, I'll figure it out. And that was kind of how I went after it. Excellent. So
0: why did you think business school was the best next step after Solomon?
1: So for me, business school was all about the pivot of careers. Because I was at Solomon, which at the time was a very well-known investment bank, I was sort of labeled as this investment banker, finance guy, and that was not who I saw myself as or what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So business school was a chance for me to, to pivot and change my identity, and it was a, an interesting pivot because I think people in the industries where I wanted to go, which was marketing, were a little bit skeptical of why they should hire me. Is he just going here because he wants to eventually go back to investment banking, or does he truly believe in it? And eventually I convinced them that I was sincere which I was. And I had that opportunity to sort of restart my career.
0: And that was when you went to Northwestern's Kellogg School to get your MBA. You went to Unilever Home and Personal Care Division. What were you doing the two years that you were at Unilever as the marketing manager?
1: Yeah. So I was actually, I was there, I think closer, almost three years. I started out as the associate brand manager, which was the title they gave you out of business school. And I worked on the brand team of three or four professionals for Mentadent Toothpaste. And I was overseeing market research, data collection, analysis, working on those Sunday coupons, the FSI, freestanding coupons that go into the newspapers to get 50 cents off a package of toothpaste. And from there, after about a year and a half in that role in the marketing department, I moved into this joint marketing sales hybrided position where I interacted between the brand department and the retailers. So I was somewhere between the sales team and the marketing team overseeing the communications and the ways that we promoted and supported the different products within Unilever, which included Dove Soap and Lever 2000 and whisk detergent and toothpaste and Pons cold cream, all of these different products that were sold through Target, Walmart, and the like. Gotcha.
0: So up until that point, maybe you had already started to change your mind, but you... Actually had, and I read this in the transcript of another interview you'd given, an aversion to getting into the family business. What was it that
1: changed, Josh? What was it that led you to be open to that possibility? Yeah. So it was, I wanted nothing to do with it. It seemed to me, and it was in a condescending, stupid way on my part. I just really was not interested in it, but there was a problem in the family business. And at the time my dad was in charge and he called me up and he said, Hey, we lost a bunch of customers. Can you come and help me understand what's going on, what have I missed, what's going on? And that was really when I came in, I took a week off of my job at Unilever and kind of poked around and looked into the numbers, spent time asking questions, starting to understand what was going on. And I quickly realized that the family business was a platform for a lot of the things that I had started to realize were important to me. Flexibility in my lifestyle, independence, decision-making authority, all those things were there. And those were some of the things that I didn't enjoy not having enough of at Unilever or at Solomon, or as we talked about earlier in government. I said, oh, wow, this is interesting. If I can ever do something on my own, this may be the springboard for doing it. And that was really what got me to look more closely and make the decision to give it a try. Fantastic. So, how did you turn things around? So, for me, the turnaround came from focusing. The business started out as seven distinct product lines. When I got there, there were seven different products, and I quickly assessed what they were and spent about a year trying to decide what I was going to do about that. And my decision was really driven by something I saw in a, a movie, the, the movie of City Slickers. I don't know if you've, you've seen oh, it with yeah. Billy Crystal. Love it. And yeah, there was a, there's a scene in City Slickers where Jack Palance's character, Curly, the old cowboy, tells Billy Crystal that he knows the secret to life. And the secret to life, according to Curly, ends up being one thing. And he never really reveals what that one thing is. But I took it to mean that a business and my career should be focused on doing one thing really well. And I took from City Slickers the idea of closing six of the seven product lines to only focus on what would become EarnX. And all the others went away. They represented more than half of the sales of the business and decided, if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna go all in on my one thing. I'm gonna follow Curly's advice. And that was really what made the business efficient, focused, focused and able to attract great people to work together with me on growing the organization.
0: I love that you got your MBA from Northwestern's <laughs> Kellogg School. And yet, the advice that helped you turn Ernex around came from Curly in City Slickers.
1: <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> it's the truth.
0: So I hope I won't offend you, Josh, when I say that Ernex isn't exactly selling what you would describe as a a very sexy product, right? Cleaning supplies for coffee machines is not women's lingerie. How did you keep yourself and your team excited about selling this one
1: product? Absolutely. And no offense taken because I love the fact that it's not sexy. I love the fact that we were able to operate in a space that had fewer competitors, fewer people really passionate about what we were trying to do. And one of the ways that I was able to get myself excited about it and motivate the team and the organization was to not talk about it as chemicals for cleaning coffee machines. What I decided from a very early point was that our business was about helping people make better tasting coffee. And that changed the whole dynamic of our discussions, of our thought process, and our enthusiasm. Because we happened to be selling cleaning products which help you make your coffee taste better. But we also were open to doing so many other things in that world. And that allowed us to separate the sort of mundane and bring it into a universe of something more attainable and more exciting. And by summarizing it that way, helping people make better tasting coffee, we unified the entire organization, customer service, sales, marketing, product development, and manufacturing behind one idea that it stopped being unsexy. It became pretty cool. Yeah. And you became the world's leading seller of cleaning products for coffee machines. You know, it's funny. There were a lot of times that I went through recruiting processes with people who were coming from much sexier industries. They were working in technology or finance. And I remember trying to recruit them to come work for me. And one of the things I used to say was, and with all sincerity, every time I would go out to a dinner party or a group of dinner with friends when I was 30 just getting started in that business. My business was the only one anyone ever wanted to talk about. They loved the idea that I was in coffee, even if I was selling coffee machine cleaner, it was the one that people came back to. And that made it, start to get really interesting. And there were many people that I hired over the years that were skeptical in the beginning. And if you were to go back and ask them what they think about selling soap for cleaning coffee machines, and they'd say, it's the coolest product ever.
0: No one even gets it. (laughs) Love it. Love it. And as you said in the Espresso Shots interview, one of the best things about the industry is the people
1: without question coffee is an industry where people are able to create a career based on a passion for something they love i think there are a lot of industries like that i equate in the book the idea of being independent pet accessory pet store provider groomer for animals there's people that love animals that create businesses that are thriving exciting businesses because they love being around animals people really love coffee and they find a way to open a coffee shop or become a roaster or invent the java jacket, things like that. And there are a few industries, you know, maybe microbrewing and beer has similar passion where you can take something you love and turn it into a business. So that's really defines an industry and makes it a nice collection of people to work with. Well, speaking of your book, Grow Like a Lobster,
0: it highlights lessons that you learned building into a global brand and includes the tips and guidance that you wish someone had shared with you when you were younger. What are those takeaways, Josh, that you could share with our young listeners right now who are yeah. going through a super painful experience with the coronavirus and maybe thinking that it's hard to grow like a lobster when you're stuck inside hunkering down because of the coronavirus?
1: Yeah, it's a really difficult time. And the I think that the thing that one of the big takeaways from the book is that this idea of the molt, this idea that we go through ups and downs in life as businesses, as human beings, if we can get comfortable with the idea that when things are going well, we should expect things to turn down in the future, when the bad things come, we're a little more able to deal with them. And if we can take those times when things are bad and be less worried about how bad they are, but more thinking about what we can do to prepare ourselves for the future, we can move forward. So if I were to give some advice or tips of things that I think people need to think about during a time like this, it's about... Getting to know yourself, getting to spend some time maybe journaling or writing. What's important to you? What do you enjoy about a workplace situation? What challenges you? What don't you like? I, as a CEO and as a business leader, kept a journal that I wrote in constantly. And that really was what I went back to to write the book. So I think getting aware of who you are and using that to focus and define what you want to be and where you want to go will help make it easier to navigate your way to arrive.
0: Another way that I might put it is, at least as somebody who's got a few more miles on my odometer than you do, is that just as your life is going to be full of wonderful things that are then invariably followed by something shitty that will happen, whether in your personal life or your professional life, the fact that we are all experiencing something really shitty right now, I can assure you good things are going to follow that is just life right now we are all experiencing an unbelievably painful scary situation we are all experiencing it which is what is so unusual about this i promise you my friends things are going to turn up and i think what josh is recommending is wonderful advice to prepare yourself for when things are going to turn up. And P.S., on the Time for Coffee website, there is a whole blog post about the jobs that are available right now if you want them that are virtual and some of them if you are willing to go and do in person. But there are jobs that are available even in very difficult times like this. One of the things that you also talked about, Josh, is how you created your own dream job. Now, not everyone has the luxury of saying, gee, there's a family business, even if it isn't doing well, that I could step into as CEO. But how would you recommend they go about preparing and thinking about what their dream job
1: would be? Well, yeah, I think one of the really important things is to understand the things that make you happy. Are you the type of person that likes to be around other people and interact with people? Are you the type of person that likes to be in a situation where things are being produced or made? For me, I really like tinkering with machines and having things that are touchable or tangible in my universe. And that was why manufacturing in that world felt good to me. But if you like being around people, think about businesses that have team related needs, how they're run, how they're structured. Do you enjoy writing? Do you enjoy communicating? Do you enjoy travel? What are the things that are important? Do you like to be in a process where you interact with strangers or does that make you uncomfortable? I think you can probably go through a long list of things that make you happy and find some way to create a criteria for what types of industries will be a fit, whether it be customer service, being for those of us that really don't mind interacting with strangers and talking them and helping them with things, or sales, similarly, where you're out there trying to make a pitch. Or would you prefer to be writing and planning and strategizing. And, or, or maybe you're someone that likes to get your hands dirty and work in roasting coffee or packaging or operations. So what are the things that are important to you? And then try and take that framework and overlay it on industries and opportunities. It may sound really simple, but it's pretty important to get to know yourself. Definitely. Another thing that is really important is being
0: able to learn From our mistakes. And I know that's something that you place a high priority on. And that is to find a job at a place, a company, a business, whatever, where young people can have an opportunity to make mistakes and learn from
1: them. Yeah, without question. Some of the most valuable employees that I had in building my business were those I hired right out of college. I had a program that we created for young, recent college graduates and gave them a chance to contribute to the organization based on their interest and skills. And I really looked at it like bringing some energy. I always went for great writers, as I said earlier, and that's really important. But people that could communicate and work with others, and they built our organization. Every two years, we added another. Some stayed, some left, some went on to graduate school. But it was really a, something of an assistant to the CEO, marketing assistant type role that evolved and changed for each person. And did you welcome their making mistakes? Always always. There was nothing better. And I think it was because I was so disappointed at my superiors at Solomon Brothers that hired me and made me do more rote type tasks and responsibilities when I felt I could have contributed more to the organization. So I sort of modeled those jobs and those positions on what I thought maybe I could have contributed to situations right out of college. And I let people run. They would come to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about taking a class in search engine optimization do you mind if i go as like as long as you work on our website and make it great go for it and you know each time one guy was into sales and he went in and just started visiting customers a woman was really really into public relations and building our pr presence and so each time they made some mistakes but they really were taking on things in an organization that was young and growing in a way that the damage that could have been done by their mistakes was so minimal, but the growth that they were able to attain in themselves as contributors to the organization was exponentially more valuable. Fantastic. And that is so true. None of us is perfect.
0: (laughs) None (laughs) of us. We are all making mistakes. Along the way, and hopefully you'll be able to find a more nurturing environment like the one that Josh was just describing where you can share that you made mistakes and not be shamed and instead be empowered to learn from those mistakes so that you can continue to grow. One of the things that I try to ask all of my guests, Josh, is if they would share a time in their professional life when they struggled. Maybe you even failed at something. But what's most important here is to hear how you persevered
1: and if there was a lesson that you may have learned in the process. Yeah, I... I had a couple i've had i've made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> everything from pushing myself too hard to trying to do things myself that I should have trusted others to do but there was a point that I like to reflect on when I was in investment banking at Salmon Brothers and I had spent i had made a commitment to work at Salmon Brothers for a minimum of two years when they hired me and I would say probably eleven or twelve months into it I was really unhappy. I was miserable with the job. I was unhappy with myself. I was stressed out. I was exhausted. And I had a mentor from college that, well, I I should back up a second. I had been approached to pursue another job, another opportunity by someone I had met through a friend of a friend. And it was totally different change of career into marketing and the beer industry. It sounded really cool. And the guy was fun and it would have been exciting. And I had this mentor who had been a professor in college who I regular touch with. And we were talking one day, I remember calling him up and I said, Hey, this is what's going on. This is what's, I'm pretty unhappy with this job here at Solomon. I have this other opportunity. And he said, oh, Josh, could you tell me, did you make a commitment to be there for a certain period of time? And with that, it occurred to me that my thinking was all wrong with such a mistake. I had made a commitment and he didn't need to go any further. I knew that it would have been a terrible mistake to have left. And I was not really even doing myself a service by thinking about leaving. My mistake was wanting to give up. And by hearing that reminder of the commitment and obligation I had made to stick it out, I really set about to kind of get over my sadness and sort of self pity and figure out how to get the most out of the next year or so of that experience. Love it. So you learned grit. I would say grit and yeah, the suck it up. (laughs) And and if you're going to suck it up, get something good out of it. So figure out what you can get exposed to or try or do it. And if it's bad, live with it. If you made a commitment to do it.
0: Oh, love it. Final T for C question, Josh. If you could go back to college, go back to Yale and do it all over again, but based
1: on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Appreciate every moment you have to be together in that community of a university with your friends and your peers. Go to the lectures, go to the guest speakers, go out to the bar after you've done your studying and hang out with your friends and interact because that social setting and that social exposure and experience of all these different amazing things that are on a campus life. I'm not sure I appreciated everything that I should have and could have. And even once you're out of college, go seek those things out. Seek those social interactions. Seek those speakers that are remotely interesting to you. Go visit things, listen to music, and appreciate every moment because we only have so much opportunity to do these things. Oh, my goodness.
0: And I think thinking about going to a concert or meeting up with friends at a cafe or a bar, whatever it is, is going to be savored so much more once the coronavirus is behind us. That is just wonderful advice. Josh is the author of the book, Grow Like a Lobster. It's a framework for no-nonsense business building. Check out show notes for a link where you can purchase it. Also check out show notes to see if Josh's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped with his advice for how to break into the coffee industry. Josh, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee with me today and with the time for coffee community wishing you and your family health happiness and just continued enjoyment once you're able to get outside and breathe the fresh air in tuscany italy
1: andrea thank you so much as they say in italian andra tutto bene which means everything will be okay and let's hope that it comes soon